I'm Dan Kimbrough, and this is Systemic, a podcast about race. I'm a diversity and inclusion advocate and trainer, educator, trained conflict mediator, and media producer with over 20 years of community building and diversity experience. From local communities to university campuses to corporate trainings, I've used my voice to bring people together and better understand each other. I'm also a black man and father. Each episode of Systemic will explore new aspects of race and racism in America. We will look at where we've been, how we got here, how it affects us today, and how we can move forward. The aim is to educate and explain the intertwining of race as a systemic part of American history and culture. We hope that each episode enlightens and drives you to help work towards an anti-racist future. In this episode of Systemic, we sit down with Dr. Angela Odoms-Young, an associate professor and director of the Food and Nutritional Education and Communities Program in the Division of Natural Sciences at Cornell University. Her research explores social and structural determinants of dietary behaviors and diet-related diseases in low-income and Black Latinx populations and centers on identifying culturally appropriate programs and policies that promote health, equity, food justice, and community resilience. Dr. Odom Jung has over 20 years of experience partnering with communities to improve nutrition and health and 200 plus academic publications, book chapters, and presentations. We discuss food insecurities from a historical and holistic standpoint, examining how many of the social determinants of health tie into systemic insecurities and barriers for many communities, not just those of color. This episode of Systemic is sponsored by the Black Equity Coalition. The Black Equity Coalition is a group of experts from diverse fields working tirelessly to address institutional racism and structural impediments that continue to plague Black, underserved, and undervalued communities. Initially focused on responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, the coalition has committed to working towards racial and health equity beyond the pandemic's eventual end by engaging the disparities in the five social determinants of health for the underserved, our necessary means of health and survival. Through the collective efforts of physicians, researchers, epidemiologists, public health and healthcare professionals, social scientists, community funders, and government officials, the Black Equity Coalition is dedicated to ensuring that vulnerable populations have access to health, well-being, and economic stability. All right. Well, welcome back, everyone, to Systemic. I'm your host, Dan Kimbrough, and today I'm here with Angela Odoms-Young, who is currently at which institution? At Cornell University in the Division of Nutritional Sciences. Yep. All right. And I want to thank you for taking some time today. Um, in this sort of section of systemic, we're going to be looking at healthcare inequities. Uh, and I invited Dr. Odom Zhang on to talk about the some of the historical issues that have that have led to how we've gotten here when it comes to food insecurities and food dignity. And you uh, and this is a paraphrase, not a direct quote, but you talked about when we look at sort of how we're moving forward with looking at uh, healthcare inequities and disparities that there's a there's a systemic issue historically that is caused all of this and that we're hopefully getting to a point where instead of patching up the genes, we're going to start looking at how do we get a new pair of genes and move us forward. Talk about the idea that systemically, well, historically, we've been patching up this systemic racism issue when it comes to health care and that maybe it's time to start looking for a new solution. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important because traditionally, if you look at health care or you look at health behavior specifically, like dietary mm-hmm. behavior, The focus has been very individual. So the idea that you make choices, other people make choices, and we don't look at life chances. And Mm -hmm. so if we think about 
um, people that have been survivors of systemic oppression, that becomes mm-hmm. really important. I mean, our food system in general needs to be improved for everybody. But people of color, and when we look at low-income populations, access is is key. And that access mm-hmm. is not just today. You know, we think about a grocery store today. But mm-hmm. the biggest environmental impact on the African-American diet, for example, is the history of slavery. So when we, we, we need to look at the legacy from sort of the beginning uh, mm-hmm. or our beginning in the United States on. So right. it's really um, uh, expansion of the issue, not mm-hmm. necessarily a new issue. And so we look at patches, we look at temporary fixes, but we need to look at root causes, income inequality. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't always think about housing, you know, mm-hmm. and how that contributes to wealth. So it really is a complicated issue. It's not just a very simple issue like I'm going to give you food or right. did you choose to eat a Big Mac or an apple? <laughs> uh, it goes deeper than that. And we need yeah. to look at social structures and mm-hmm. how it can help support people live healthy. Yeah. And talk about the importance of wealth and some of the, the, the articles that you, you shared in talking about food disparities. So many of them talked about the wealth disparities and historical wealth gap in the U.S. between black and white uh, or even non-white and black in this country. How is why is that so intrinsically intertwined when we're talking about health and nutrition and food? So I think we need to look at food in our experience in the United States is being closely linked. And wealth is Mm -hmm. part of that. We were brought here to generate wealth. So if you look at the history of agriculture and labor and uncompensated labor, the Mm -hmm. generation of food and engaging in labor also resulted in the lack of wealth. So if you think about sort of that start of being years of engaging in uncompensated labor, not receiving you know, uh, income uh, Mm -hmm. after that. Uh, Essentially, a lot of people, particularly scholars that look at wealth inequality, talk about starting behind. You know, so it's not unusual to think, okay, well, food insecurity exists today. Actually, food insecurity in the Black community is twice that of -hmm. the white community. But Uh, There's a book about what slaves ate, for example, that I was looking at, and they interview people right after slavery, and a lot of those people were food insecure. So if you think about three generations, two generations of poverty, then that becomes a major contributor because you need income to purchase food. You need income to Mm -hmm. purchase housing. Um, And so a lot of it, it was also not only rooted in labor explicitly, but also policies that were Mm -hmm. associated with labor and racial segregation. You know, are are there certain policies in place that keep you from generating wealth, uh, that keep you from, you know, purchasing a home, which is really a wealth creator? Mm -hmm. So all of those things are really um, important when we think about diet, not just other things like education. which or housing, they also result in uh, inequities that exist in health. And one of the things that I found that was interesting um, and doing some research uh, before this conversation is that when we talk about wealth, 
wealth is a long-term sort of grown thing where income is the here and now. Can you speak to that difference in why mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. not so much about the income that you're creating today, but about the wealth that your family either has or does not have from the past? Mm -hmm. That's uh, particularly important. Even in studies, we traditionally measure income. Mm -hmm. What does a person uh, look like right now? That also doesn't speak to their entire financial picture right. because it doesn't speak to savings. You know, a mm -hmm. lot of times people talk about folks being one check yeah. away from poverty uh, or um, many people of color had downward mobility. So we mm -hmm. don't always think about this idea that wealth is important because it helps you avoid any type of economic shock. Because mm -hmm. if you lose your job, you don't have income. I mean, income is important and we right. know wage inequities are important, but wealth helps people maintain well-being because mm -hmm. it, it contributes some significant stability. Right. So right. Um, people are able to recover. Um, COVID is a prime example of an economic shock. Uh, but not only COVID, Hurricane Katrina and other things. What happens if somebody has an unexpected expense, like a medical expense? What happens if you lose value in your home? Mm -hmm. All of those things will put you potentially uh, in an economic, you know, uh, you know, sort of a dire straits position that is different than income. That's wealth. Yeah. Um, and so... When it comes to food, you know, we spend money. Uh, food is an, a, a, an expense that we have consistently. Mm -hmm, we need mm -hmm. food to live. Right, right, but, right. Uh, we also need rent. <laughs> we need utilities. Uh, we need water. Mm -hmm. And in some places, you know, uh, the, the uh, water uh, expense. So water is not free. So all of these things play a role where people may not have that income uh, mm -hmm. to purchase food, but it also may drive them into poverty that makes it difficult to make ends meet. I know along my career, I've interviewed people that are food insecure and people have a picture of folks that are food insecure. They don't always think about people that have been to college or had some mm. college, but college debt of course, is uh, yeah. an issue as it relates to that. Uh, so it, it, it becomes a complicated issue that can be very, I guess, viewed in a very simple way in a sense that people need resources to live. Yeah. And food is part of that living. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the what is food insecurity? I think that it's a term that is, at least for me, over the past two to three years, has become more and more prevalent. But it's not just hunger. It's something that's much deeper than the idea that this person is hungry. There's a lot more that goes into that. Could you talk to that? Mm -hmm. So food insecurity is a social and economic condition at the household level. Uh, mm -hmm. People fear that they may run out of money, uh, run out of food and not have money to buy more. Uh, food is inconsistent. So people experience food anxiety. Mm -hmm. So there's a psychological component that goes along with it. It's a physiological. So uh, we don't think of food insecurity as being equal to hunger, but hunger being a consequence of food insecurity, that instability within a household mm -hmm. where you, um, you, potentially may be without food, either quality, quantity, mm -hmm. variety, 
Uh, and many people think about the extreme end, what we think of as very low food uh, insecurity, but there's also marginal food security, low food security, where mm-hmm. people start to sacrifice both quality and quantity of food. And all household members don't experience it equally, as you would guess that young children, that parents try to preserve, you know, um, or protect young children from food insecurity. So um, mothers or fathers may experience that food insecurity. Teenagers that we don't always think about uh, to protect Mm -hmm. young, young children and siblings from that experiencing that lack of food. But that anxiety translates into the entire household. If you yeah. were a parent and you thought, okay, I I have a college-age daughter, you know, to say, mom, I want something to eat. You know, your feeling is going to be right. that deprivation has a mental health uh, impact. Right. And so it's not just the physical, I'm hungry in this moment or the worry, but it's also the mental impact of where is that next meal or how do I protect my child from realizing this? Uh, But you even talked about like the notion that you've graduated college, but you still may be food insecure. You may be elderly and you are still food insecure. It's not just Mm -hmm. sort of the core family or the youth, but like anyone in the world, anyone at any point in their lives could be dealing with some sort of food insecurity. Mm I mean, that's Anything, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if you looked at your grocery bill lately, <laughs> you know, and then also with to. inflation, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, if you don't have access to some of those supports, so things like SNAP mm-hmm. or the charitable food system, it can keep people from experiencing that food anxiety. Now, that's a meantime strategy in a sense. We want people to move, you know. SNAP is probably the biggest response that we have to food insecurity in the United States. And, and honestly, for some people, it's still not enough mm-hmm. because it's, it, you know, is a supplemental benefit, not the entire pie. So, to right, speak. right. But um, in a lot of families that receive SNAP have disabilities, the seniors, they're working. Mm-hmm. So I think when we think about food insecurity as this sort of persistent um you know, or sometimes cyclical experience in the United States, it has an important impact on health. And yeah. it is, uh, you know, susceptible to, to, you know, that possibility that unfortunately we all could be faced with that experience uh, because of a significant health problem, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. loss of job and loss of income without savings, um, loss of housing, uh, all of those factors can play a role. And so in sort of taking a step back, and, and, and so in today's world, sort of we're looking at, you talk about housing, which, you know, redlining for black and brown communities. You didn't, either you were moved out of where you were or you're in, you're in areas that are extremely high population, very low access to sometimes even structures just to get out of the community to get to work, food, all these different things. Um, there's all these things that are happening today that are sort of the end result of very early systemic racism and all these things. Mm-hmm. How how have we gone? You know, it's and realistically, we're looking at 120, 200 years 
depending on when you want to start this, how is it that as a society we still are dealing with this? Like, and, and you look at the data and it almost goes through waves. Like you'll see moments where the, the, the wealth gap and even the security gaps get a little bit narrower, never go away, but then they explode back up. And so there's almost waves of this happening throughout history. Why haven't we been able to solve this? Why is this still something specifically in black, brown and in indigenous populations? This is still an issue. We can't feed our own people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, 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 we really have to deal with the root causes. So if mm-hmm. you think about a race and somebody's running a race and you start yesterday <laughs> and I start today, trust me, you're going to be probably you can run faster even. You're going to be farther along than I. Mm-hmm. And it's important that we figure out a way to close that gap, that we have policies, yeah. honestly, that start at birth or preconception mm-hmm. to really invest in closing that economic gap. And honestly, yeah. I'm not even convinced totally that if we close that gap, that some of these disparities won't still exist, but we will be able to advance you know, mm-hmm. towards that. It might take a while. It won't be overnight. Yeah. But- the income gap is probably one of the biggest, um, you know, predictors. Uh, poverty is not always associated with, with food insecurity, but the idea of a gap, yeah. you know, this gap that exists um, in wealth and in income, not at an individual level, but an entire community level, right, um, right. at a population level. So mm-hmm. it's not that we haven't... Um, try to solve some of the issues, but mm-hmm. um, I think we can make a more significant investment. It's very difficult to deal with the problem that's happening today, like mm-hmm. food insecurity, addressing that immediate need. And so if you look at the charitable food system, for example, like our food pantries, our network of food banks, the focus is on feeding people today. Right Now, even they're starting to think, um, about the idea that we need to look at tomorrow. We need to look at this idea. Yes, it's it's good to feed people today, but if we don't deal with these systemic factors, Mm -hmm. uh, investing in education, in the immediate need of job training and employment, we know mass incarceration has had a huge impact on uh, economic uh, stability within families. Mm -hmm. So how do we look at addressing those factors? And that becomes that I think will help us long term. And then stigma and discrimination is still something that we need to try to to address. Um, Martin Luther King, I saw a wonderful uh, sort of interview not long before Martin Luther King was killed about this idea of once you make something a thing, Mm -hmm. it's hard to reverse that so he was talking about humans essentially Mm -hmm. once you dehumanize Uh, a population Mm -hmm. how do you make that population human again and that stigma of racism may continue if we don't deal with some of the root of that and really change it not only hearts and minds because (laughs) we know that we have to change policies Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. also communities and environments but we can't underestimate the importance of bringing hearts and minds along with it. Yeah, uh, and that's really interesting that you said that there was a there, one of the articles that you sent over. There was a there was a discussion about the idea of the individual versus the system, 
and the idea that when we think of poverty or we think of hunger and all these things, we think that the individual did something wrong. We may still be willing to help, but we're viewing him as you did this to yourself. Like you're in poverty or you're hungry because you've made a mistake, which is us ignoring the systemic issues, right? That no, no, historically, this group of individuals has dealt with insecurities and disparities. And so this individual may be dealing with the end result of a systemic historical advancement. Why is it important that we have to look and call out racism, call out whatever ism it is that caused the individual to be hurting? Why is the calling out of the bigger picture really important? It's really important for everybody. We think about, you know, we value, even in the black community, we value resilience mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of durability. You know, I don't know how many people like, I overcame that, you know, <laughs> like I, I was resilient, you know, I was able to, you know, overcome X. Yeah. And sometimes uh, the idea of slavery, you heard people say all kind of crazy things. Like I would have run away and you know what I mean? Like, so you're like, what, you know, <laughs> but this is like a system. Um, and if we don't deal with systems, there will always be, of course, there's, there is going to be a very response. Some people mm -hmm. are going to be able to be resilient, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that they haven't been impacted. A lot of times, if you look at even wage gaps, for example, one of the biggest wage gaps is not of people that have high school diplomas, but of people that have advanced degrees. Oh, wow. So part of this idea about where would people be if some of these systemic factors didn't exist, we think, oh, that person's doing okay. You know, they're not living in poverty or they're not homeless, but we would all do better mm -hmm. because the other thing that we don't talk as much about is the impact of systemic oppression of people of color on the entire society, you yeah. know? So part of this idea that you think it's just the people that are survivors of systemic oppression, but in a way we're all survivors mm -hmm. of systemic oppression. How does that mute the possibility of a society to advance when we invest in all people? What is happening when we have people experiencing food insecurity? What could those people be contributing yeah. to society? Instead, they're worried about where is my next meal going to come from? Mm -hmm. So we're all linked. And so dealing with systemic factors help create a better society. I mean, there's several studies, both internationally and domestically, that talk about how income inequality not just absolute poverty, but how income inequality contributes to poor health in a county, poor health in a country. And mm -hmm. so all of those things can really play a role in improving outcomes for everybody. And it's, so it's not just individual, like you failed, you know, like you can't take care of your family. Well, guess what? Some of, like, like I mentioned before, some of those people are working, they're mm -hmm. investing, they're paying taxes. And so a lot of times we think, okay, well, it's, they, it's, it's your fault. But if we set up a structure where everybody can succeed and think more upstream mm -hmm. instead of downstream, uh, again, that analogy where people fall into the river and we are pulling them out one by one, guess what? 
they're falling into the river because there's no fence. <laughs> they're right. not just falling. <laughs> so if we build more fences mm -hmm. it, to keep people from falling, then they can also uh, engage and contribute to society in a more robust way because, um, and then that, that benefits everybody. Yeah. And I really like that, that example of, yes, we need to continue to pull the people who have fallen in the river out, but let's stop people from falling in the river as well so that we don't have to continuously do these individual things. Let's just stop people from falling in, which is also acknowledging the river is a problem. <laughs> You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah. there's a river here. We have a problem. Let's figure out something. And so that's <laughs> right. you're dealing with the past. You're preparing for the future, but yeah. you're still dealing with that immediate need. I like that. I like that analogy a lot. Um, looking forward, what are some of the solutions? What are some of the things that are being done? What has research shown us as sort of tracks of how do we move forward? I know you said that you don't think it'll be fully realized, but how do we make any progress mm -hmm. at all? What are, what are some of the things that are being done right now? So I think in the very short term, equitable access is important. Uh, stores, for example, or other types of um, innovative, like planned community development within these communities that are uh, worker owned or, you know, institutions within communities like church or faith-based institution owned, mm -hmm. uh, retail outlets, it can help farmers markets, uh, urban farms, all of those things I think are really important if we bring them to scale, one, their businesses. Mm -hmm. So how do we invest in the businesses in communities of color where they provide jobs, expand the tax base? That's, I think, uh, important investing in businesses, investing in people. So racism is a traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. We need to look at trauma-focused uh, interventions to heal people from the trauma so they can be more... Um, whole, honestly. Um, so those are investments. We need to uh, invest in attainable housing. We think mm -hmm. a lot about affordable housing, uh, rental housing, but we also need to invest in home ownership mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and also uh, uh, help people with maintaining those homes. Um, there's other types of things like baby bonds and being able to invest in uh, people when they're born uh, to think about equity you know, a lot of people, uh, when you have a wealth gap, they may start without wealth. Yeah. So how do we help uh, really um, invest in things like baby bonds or early childhood, for example, uh, so people can have a healthy start? Mm -hmm. uh, within hospital systems, hospital systems are really expanding to address things like food insecurity through food as medicine programs, mm -hmm. uh, as well as looking at other types of supports within our healthcare system, like law clinics. People don't always think about law clinics. You mm -hmm. know, if you have some type of, you know, you can end up unjustly, you know, owning yeah, okay. something or your house being taken. So believe it or not, the healthcare system is starting to look at law support, law mm -hmm. clinics, those things that can be part of, we don't always think about those things impacting your health. Yeah. yeah. So we need to uh, try to address those things that put people behind. Uh, many times we think about those as individually and because maybe we're addressing it individually, mm -hmm. um, like eliminating medical debt, but that can have an uh, impact on the entire society. 
And then we're also going to have to look at restorative policies, what those restorative policies are, you know, people debate, you know, <laughs> can we close this gap through all these different restorative policies? But we have to be realistic about the restorative policies because we can't, we have to figure out what might be the best approach because in some ways a burden on government may be difficult. Um, a lot of times people in philanthropy are also thinking about investments, you know, mm -hmm. because these aren't really just social service programs. They're investments. Right. So how do we look at community investments and ROI? I don't, I don't think we have to only look at that, but we really yeah. have to think about building communities, building strong communities, building businesses, uh, economic stability, not just sort of a social service mentality of helping. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can help close gaps, jobs, money, you know, maybe food in the meantime. Um, but how do we leverage really restructuring society so that black communities are economically stable? Yeah. And that's it's, and black and, and brown communities. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Black and brown mm -hmm. communities nope, are nope, economically nope. stable. And it's interesting because I think about in a conversation around food, you're talking about housing, you're talking about jobs, you're talking about mental health, you're talking about transportation, like all of these things that have been and they're all tied to the same systemic uh, historical issues within this country. You know, we saw not that we can solve, but, you know, we deal with racism. How many things do we start checking off the list or start making mm -hmm. big progress because we're removing race? And so I think it's interesting that in this conversation around food, there are so many other things that lead up to access to food that we're not always thinking about and like this level of intersectionality. Um, and I think it's amazing. How do we, how do we get people to realize it's a bigger issue? Like it's not just the food on my plate at dinner tonight. It's how do I get to the store to get the food? How do I get the food home? How do I pay mm -hmm. for the food? Where am I cooking the food? Like how do we get people to realize it's so much more than just a meal in front of me? Mm -hmm. We really need to talk about both. You know, we get so focused on consumption, mm -hmm. the end result, you know, consumption. And we we still believe this perception of choice, not chance. I think oh. shifting this idea from it's not just choice, it's structural factors that are shaping choice, including uh, marketing in yeah. um, food marketing. Uh, <laughs> we can't forget about that in targeted marketing. Yeah. Um, and I want to make sure to emphasize this idea, you know, racism is part of that, but it's not either or, it's more. Mm. We have a broken food system that needs to be restructured in a sense that impacts everybody. We yeah. can't forget about low-income white families, a lot mm -hmm. of families that live in agricultural communities, a lot mm -hmm. of black and brown agricultural workers as well. They're, you know, producing food, but struggling getting adequate food based on income and availability. Yeah. So this idea of kind of targeted universalism, if we deal with people's challenges that may be the most at risk, we can help improve society for everybody. Mm. And we need to shift and get people to start to think about society matters. We're not against each other. 
Right. The idea is that structures matter and they're shaping, you know, it's, it's not, we think we have so much control, honestly, <laughs> but uh, shifting that conversation to have supportive societies is critical. And can you, can and you how little... you do it? It's difficult. You know, yeah. what I mean? well, yeah. <laughs> you got to kind of push people, but sometimes it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. And can you speak a little more on that idea that, that if, well, yeah, we don't want to forget about non-black or brown communities that are struggling with, with income and food and all these other things, but how, if we help those who are in the most need, we end up lifting everyone. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah. So a lot of these solutions are, you know, they are, they can be designed where they can help, you know, it's like a rising tide lifts all mm -hmm. boats. Yeah. So yep. this idea that it's, we can't all win, you know, we're always kind of thinking about this idea that we can't all win, but if we restructure food systems and we look at those supports for black and brown communities, some of that is through a poverty pathway. Yeah. So it's not all going to be addressed by addressing poverty, but some of it can be addressed. I mean, we do have to address racism. Don't get me mm -hmm. wrong. Mm -hmm. But one way that racism operates is through poverty. Right. So if we create opportunities, but it's a layering, it, it's, as you mentioned, that intersectionality, mm -hmm. it's like you add race, you add poverty. Uh, let's not forget about sexual orientation and mm -hmm. gender identity because mm -hmm. LGBTQ plus populations are more at risk, both in black and white and Latin, uh, you know, or Latinx communities mm -hmm. when you mm -hmm. look at comparatively. So it, it's, it's, I like to think of it as not just race. Right. Uh, and then we go to racism, but mm -hmm. really thinking about these layers of oppression. Yeah. So people in low income white communities do have a layer of, economic, uh, you know, oppression. But if we layer that with race and racism, right. and we mm -hmm. layer that with adding, you know, sexual minority status or LGBTQ plus and that g and gender identity, we mm -hmm. see that there's sort of a layering. Yeah. Um, and so part of that layering, uh, if we look at addressing, again, structural oppression itself, that concept, what can we do to reverse that, uh, mm -hmm. whether it be income, race, then those models can help uh, yeah. alleviate a lot of the burden for everybody. Well, yeah, because then you're scaling, right? If you figured out poverty in scale. one group, how do you, how do you mm -hmm. how do you replicate and scale to another group? And then, well, we've tackled poverty. Yep, racism is still an issue, but we're feeding these the people now. Now let's move on mm -hmm. to housing. No, no, racism is still an issue, but now people are being housed, and it's that stacking it up. And eventually, like, no, we took care of racism. No, no, remember when we took care of all of these things that were plaguing society <laughs> that helped knock out all of this over here as well. So, and mm -hmm. I, I like that. Um, so. To the person who still doesn't get it. Nope, you have made the choice. You are the reason you're poor. You're the reason you're hungry. You're the reason you're homeless. What do you say to that person who ignores all the data, the research? What do we say to try to get that person or do we give up on them? What, what, what did you say to that individual? I think the first thing as a researcher, and we haven't done a lot of this, we've studied the impact of these things but mm -hmm. not the sort of mentality that contributes to the thinking 
about the, you know, self-blame. And yeah. I'm really curious. I, I think just like anything else, we need to dig deeper and understand more about why a person, you can't really address something unless you understand why a person came to this mm. conclusion. And honestly, I think we need to start in early life, like maybe not as early as preschool, but start trying to understand the development of this perception in teenagers, mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. middle school, because it doesn't come when somebody is 50. It right. normally evolves over time. So I would say to that person, uh, let me interview you. Tell me more <laughs> <laughs> about your life experience, because what mm -hmm. we can do is restructure those experiences. I've come in contact with people that think very differently, although they are from a totally different experience than they didn't live in poverty. They mm -hmm. lived in wealth. And for whatever reason, they came to a conclusion and they have a good understanding of this. Gotcha. How did gotcha. that happen? And we yeah. need to look at those models um, of how people start to engage and lean into social justice. Mm -hmm. um, I'm UCC, for example. I'm the, uh, mm -hmm. a member of Trinity United Church of Christ on the south side of Chicago. And we've had people that come to visit that church that you, if you saw that person on the street, you would be like, okay, this person is for sure. They would not understand this perception, mm -hmm. but we need to learn more about how to change hearts and minds and how to change knowledge where people understand mm -hmm. that it's systemic. And that comes through training. It comes through exposure. Gotcha. A lot of this is just limited exposure. And then and some people are self-serving as power. Yeah, And so I think if the power conversation becomes a very difficult one. <laughs> it's, a, it's an entirely different conversation. I agree. Exactly. I agree. Yeah. So, uh, you know, what do you say to those people? Let me, let's have coffee. Oh, you know? I like and that. Then, yeah. And then you might have to say not coffee today, maybe <laughs> coffee in a few years. But uh, one thing that, I've seen with seniors, for example, people start to understand some things when they age mm -hmm. uh, that they didn't understand before. Not always. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, so part of it is, I think, exposure and experience. And then we need to engage in more training mm -hmm. in education programs that help support not only those that are disproportionately impacted, but those that have power. Gotcha. Gotcha. I like that. Let's let's have a coffee. Let's rather than shun them away, let's invite them in and, and try to figure out where they're coming from mm -hmm. and then go that route. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Well, Dr. Odom Jung, thank you so much uh, for your time today. If folks wanted to reach out and, and have in further discussion with you, if they wanted to invite you out for that cup of coffee, what's the best way for them to reach you? <laughs> <laughs> it's by email. Mm -hmm. Odom's hyphen young at Cornell edu. All right. So well, thank Odom's you. Young. Yeah. Odom's Young at Cornell.edu. Thank you very, very much. Uh, and that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening to Systemic. This podcast aims to create a community of change and can only do so through your support. 
please make sure you subscribe and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you would, head over to Apple Podcasts to rate and leave a review. The more you share and review Systemic, the more our community of change can grow. Another way you can help is supporting Systemic on Patreon. Your contributions will allow the podcast to expand and give you the opportunity to support Systemic offline. Thank you again for listening and your support. Systemic is a production and passion of Park Multimedia. And remember, to solve any problem, you must first acknowledge it exists. Mm